Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Sunday School Hour here at Faith Baptist Church. Let's all grab our Bibles this morning and turn with me to uh, the book of John, chapter 19. John chapter 19 this morning, and we are continuing our series, Why We Believe What We Believe. It's a doctrine series, and we've talked about um, paterology. Does anybody remember what paterology means? Is that a drink from my Harry Potter mug? Get mad at me, independent Baptists. Mm. That is some Gryffindor coffee right there. What? Is that God the Father? It is God the Father. Mm. The next one will be easier. We've been studying Christology. Does anybody know what Christology can mean? The study of Christ, yeah. The study of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's God the Father and God the Son. And it actually lined up perfectly because we started with the birth of Christ, sort of the life of Christ going through. But <clears throat> because we had talked about Christmas and then we started Christology. And so what we talked about firstly was the person of Christ and some of the attributes of what made him Christ, what made him God the Son, uh, what made him uh, man, uh, relatable to us and a representative for us. And then we started talking about the life of Christ and I took a, a more of a unique spin on the life of Christ instead of talking about the different life events of the Lord Jesus Christ going all the way through we talked about how Christ expressed his power while he was here on the earth the power of Christ over nature the power of Christ over death the power of Christ over uh, food the power of Christ over money and then last week we talked about the power of Christ over Satan and we are now transitioning into the third and final phase of Christology. So it was the person of Christ, the life of Christ, and this week we're starting the work of Christ. Now when I, when I say the work of Christ, you might say, haven't we been talking about that the whole time? And we have. But what we mean when we say the work of Christ is more specifically uh, the work of redemption, the work of salvation if you will. And uh, those things that he did specifically that saved us from our sins, made available to us salvation. Uh, so we are talking about this week, the death of Christ. Next week will be our family feud game. And then the week after that, we'll talk about the burial and resurrection of Christ which will lead us right up to Easter, where on Easter Sunday, instead of having a normal Sunday school hour like this, we'll be doing the Lord's Supper. And it'll be our first ever Lord's Supper, and it'll be a, a very um, sacred time. And I hope we'll come sort of excited for it. I always get excited about the Lord's Supper. There's just something special about it. But this week we're talking about 
the death of Christ. And in John chapter 19, <clears throat> we'll see in verse 1, it says, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. But we see... Uh, says in verse 4, Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. So we see firstly this morning is Pilate's reluctant decision. And I'm just going to kind of go through this uh, this morning and we'll just see how far we get. Really and truly, I hope to get through the whole thing because I don't have time to do a second part next week. We got to keep going, you know. So let's go ahead and jump into it. Uh, the first verse goes over something incredible, something terrible, something horrible. Uh, it says, then, there, uh, says, then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. Now, for those of you who don't know what a scourging is, I'm going to give you some graphic details. You might want to put your donut down. Um, nobody here is holding a donut. I'm talking to you people on the other side of the camera. A scourging is uh, what they would do is they took Jesus and they chained him uh, to chains that are uh, fastened to two uh, wooden blocks. They might have been um, stone, but it was a, something solid, something you couldn't get away from. And they chained him to it with his back facing uh, his torturers. And uh, what they would do is they would strip the shirt off of his back. So the flesh of his back was exposed to them. And they had a weapon, and it was called the Cat of Nine Tails. And basically what it was is it was a whip with nine lashes on it. And at the end of each lash was tied uh, something sharp. It might have been a nail. It might have been a piece of glass. Uh, but whatever it was was tied to the end of each of the nine uh, ends of this whip and they would take as you might imagine they would take the whip and they would whip the person being scourged with it and they would yank it down like that to, to draw it out of the person so it would create long furrows uh, through the flesh into their back and they would do this 39 times that was what a scourging was. So 39 times these Roman soldiers are gashing the flesh of our Lord uh, over and over and over again. So this is the scourging mentioned here in verse 1. And it's important to understand, not just, just gloss right over that. What you might also find uh, interesting is that the Apostle Paul, the Bible says that he was scourged nine times Jesus was scourged once Paul was scourged nine times he said nine times received I 40 lashes save one that's 39 that's a scourging if you were to look at the back of Paul it would have been just a it would have just been a horrible sight to look upon you can imagine all the, the scarring from that. 
but the scourging of Jesus uh, there in verse 1. And then it says, after the scourging, uh, in verse 2, the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns. Now, these aren't the little thorns that you get from your mother's rose bush. Okay? Those thorns are sharp and they hurt. You know, these aren't the, the thorn bush that you pull from the side of the house so you can plant, you know, ivy down the side of your wall or something. That's not that either. Those are sharp and they certainly hurt too. But these thorns were from a very particular kind of bush that grows in that region. And uh, they used them for torture intentionally. Well, they took these thorns and they formed it in the place of a crown to mock Jesus. Because he said that he was king. And so they put this crown of thorns, this mockery crown, on top of his head. And they beat it into his skull. These thorns were about that long. They were very long, sharp thorns. And when they beat it into his head, literally it went into his head. And it gashed into him. There was blood, because one of the places where the blood flows the most is here in your head. And so when they, those thorns went into his flesh, scraping his skull, their blood just poured from the top of his head, running all over his face staining his face with that blood. So they put a crown of thorns on the head and they put on him a purple robe. Purple, as most of you probably know, is a color for royalty. The reason for that is to get anything in the color purple uh, used to be a really difficult thing to do. So it was reserved for only those who could afford it. And the only people who could afford it were royalty with tons and tons of cash they had taken up from taxes. So purple was typically uh, synonymous with royalty. And so this is a continuation of their mockery of Jesus. They're putting a purple robe over him uh, where he had just been scourged, which was its own special kind of pain. Uh, if you know anything about a, a wound that begins to heal, you put any sort of clothing over that, uh, it begins to heal. That's a painful thing to, to have to remove later. I had uh, was working for a vacation Bible school one year, and, and somebody had the genius idea of making a, an aquarium uh, out of, like that goes over the top of the whole thing on the sides and over the top, like a big archway that went down the entire hallway of the church out of chicken wire that we cover with paper. And much to our protest, we were ordered to do it anyways. <clears throat> so we did it, and... Uh, as we were taking it down at the end of EBS, I took a chunk, not a scratch, literally a chunk came out of my finger. Big, open, gaping thing. Amanda remembers this. And so we tried to wrap it really tight, right? But it wasn't quite tight enough. And what happened was some of that cloth got inside the wound. And as it started to heal, it started to make the cloth a part of my finger. When I say removing that was one of the most painful experiences of my life, you can have no doubt. Now imagine this robe they just put over Jesus, right? And you remember when we get later on down the road, he's going to be crucified. What are they going to do with that robe? They're going to remove it. So this is its own special kind of torturous pain. Um... They put the, a purple robe on him and they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. 
Now, the thing about Roman soldiers in that day, which are kind of like um, like a dirty cop, you know, a police officer who uh, doesn't mind breaking the law to benefit himself or abusing somebody so long as he doesn't get caught, you know, that kind of a thing, is that they know how to inflict damage without leaving a mark, right? Because these Roman soldiers know if Pilate finds out that they've been beating him beyond the scourging he ordered, they would be put to death. But they were so enraged by this man Jesus because they pride they they prided themselves on the ability to make a man scream out for mercy. The thing about our Lord is he embraced what he endured on his way to the cross. Every step of the way, no matter how painful it was, because he did it for you. And the pain he felt was nothing compared to the love he felt for each and every one of us. So they couldn't get him to scream out or beg for mercy. So it made them that much angrier. So that's why they took the thorns and they took the robe and they beat them with the palms of their hands. And it was they beat them with their hands, it says specifically, so that their hands wouldn't leave a mark but would still cause as much pain. Verse 4, uh, and then after all of this, he comes back, and Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth uh, to you that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Uh, Pilate was trying to do everything possible to keep from killing Jesus. This was not because he so believed in Jesus as the Christ. This was because his wife... Uh, we know of in another gospel <clears throat> had a dream the night before and it was such a, a powerful dream she comes to her husband Pilate and says I've had a dream about this man don't mess with him he's somebody special don't have anything to do with this just man and so he's that already has made him a little hesitant about this whole thing. But then he examines Jesus, right? And the examination is, and we've talked about this in other lessons and sermons before. It's him and it's the Lord, and we're going to get to that in a little bit, and he examines him. But the more he looks at Jesus, the more he spends time with Jesus, the more he realizes this man has committed no crime. He didn't try to start a regime or a rebellion against Caesar. What he's talking about is spiritual, which is no offense to their government at all. And he understands this, and there's no crime being done here. But normally, Pilate would have put him to death anyways just to make the people happy, except for that dream. So it's making things a bit more complicated for Pilate. And we see his reluctancy to make the decision he will eventually make. So he's, he's telling them here, I've tortured him. You can see all the blood, all the scars. I've, I've, we've punished him. And yet I find no fault in him. Then came uh, Jesus forth in verse 5, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. This man bloodied and beaten and in pain. And he's thinking, surely now they'll be satisfied. When the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they, uh, they cried out, saying, Crucify him!
Pilate saith unto them, Take ye and crucify him. That's what I'm talking about. For I find no fault in him. Pilate saying, I'm not going to crucify him. He didn't commit a crime. But think about what we just read. You know, sometimes this story can become so familiar to us that we miss some really big things like we just read. You, you read a big thing, and you might not have realized it. They're hollering out, crucify him. But who's the one hollering out? The chief priests and the officers of the temple, the religious leaders of their day. It would have been as though a group of pastors had gathered together to shout from the top of their lungs, put him to death, kill him, make sure he doesn't see another sunrise, make sure he dies the most horrendous and bloody death we can think of. Could you imagine a group of pastors coming together with that on their lips? That'd be a horrible thing, wouldn't it? And yet, it is exactly what we have here in John 19. The religious leaders, the spiritual guardians of Israel, are crying out for blood. And that's bad enough. But whose blood? The blood that is to fulfill all that they hold sacred and dear. The blood of the one whom they should have bowed the knee to. The blood of one whom they should have showed all reverence and respect and devotion to. And they took him and they wanted him dead. Not just dead, but crucified. You know, you guys probably heard me tell the story of the skunk in the dumpster on Wednesday. If not, you need to start watching Wednesdays. Uh, you're missing some funny stories, evidently. Uh, but one of the things that we were concerned with about this thing was its suffering. We didn't want it to keep hurting. We wanted to go ahead and put it out of its misery if we couldn't save it. And unfortunately, we couldn't save it. Nobody could save it. We called around asked all kinds of people, what do we do for this poor thing? And everybody was like, don't know, good luck. Okay. So unfortunately, we did have to end up shooting it. Uh, but that was the most humane thing to be done. But we're talking about a stinky skunk. We're talking about an animal you would normally come within a thousand feet of. And yet, there's still some concern for its pain. Even from us. Now imagine the chief priests, the religious leaders, those who know God, the creator God, the sustainer and creator of life, and they've been studying about him their whole lives. And they are crying out for human blood, for the torture, the most torturous death. Uh, for them to ask that of any human being would be inhumane and disgusting. People talk about how inhumane the death penalty is. I'd be glad that they weren't alive for crucifixions. They say the Romans perfected death. 
in crucifixions. So they not only wanted Pilate to put Jesus to death, they wanted the most painful death imaginable in all of human history. That from any human would have been a grave sin on the part especially of a chief priest. But they want the greatest torture from their Lord, from their master, from their king. It's a huge thing you read there in verse 6. And if you too familiarize yourself with this story, you'll kind of pass right by that and not realize just how terrible the thing that they're saying is. The Jews answered him in verse 7, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid, because now there's a large, angry crowd forming. And went again into the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? Asking him, Where are you from? What are you? Whence art thou? It's a good question, isn't it? But Jesus gave him no answer. Jesus didn't answer. You know, sometimes that's the best thing you can do. You know, we pride ourselves on giving great riffs on each other, don't we? Like, the coolest person is the one that can make them the greatest comeback. You know? When we want to have an answer, we want to have the best answer, we want to have the one that puts you to bed. You know? That's what we kind of pride ourselves on as people. The guy who can give the greatest insult is the, you know, the greatest guy around. But maturity and Christian growth teaches us the opposite. And sometimes the best thing you can do is just keep your mouth shut. Sometimes the best thing for you to do overall is say nothing at all. Keeping your silence, the Bible calls it. That's what he did here. Caesar's looking, not Caesar, Pilate's looking for anything, any accusation, any reason to say, yes, okay, we'll crucify him. He finally broke a law. Jesus won't give it to him. You know why? Because prophecy dictates that he was to be punished as an innocent man. He was to be crucified having done no wrong. He gave no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? We're talking about Pilate here. We're talking about the governor of the region the most powerful man in the area. This man can make things happen for you or he can make things stop happening for you. Right? And a person like that, you want to make sure you get off on the right foot with, right? You know, if you're trying to start up a business, you might want to make sure you get off on the proper foot 
with those on the uh, on the uh, you know in the council of that city. Make sure that the people who determine what businesses get to stay and get to go, you want to make sure those people uh, like you. You make sure that you start things off on the right foot. That's how people like that are treated. All day, every day. The more power somebody has, the more people <coughs> want that person to like them. Pilate was used to being treated this way. People fawning over him, pleading, please like me. Jesus didn't care. Jesus didn't care who Pilate was. And it made Pilate upset. He says, you don't seem to understand how this works. You're supposed to be groveling to me. Maybe I should just go ahead and have you killed. You know I have the power to do that, right? You should be trying to get me to like you. I have the power to release you. Jesus answered in verse 11, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. You see, that's the attitude. That's the attitude I've always had, and it's the attitude that nobody seems to appreciate. You can imagine. Somebody comes to me and they say, Listen, I'm the professor. You need to listen to me. Or they say, Listen, this one probably more relatable to some people. I'm the pastor. You need to listen to me. Right? We've probably heard that one a time or two before. Or someone says, Hey, listen, I'm your boss. You need to do what I tell you to. But the fact of the matter is, those people could have no power at all except that God gave those people their power. And if the events unfold that it's meant for me to leave because that power decided they didn't like me, then so be it. But they can't do anything against me unless God allows it. People don't like that sentiment. They like to think they control people's lives, right? They, they get to move people like pieces on a chessboard. Anybody who finds themselves in a position of authority must first understand you don't have any power that God didn't allow you to have. So you ought to be cautious in abusing that power. We're taught in scripture that the pastor is the greatest servant Right? Not one that holds authority over everybody else, but one who serves everybody else. And some people need to get a hold of that. It's a humbling thing. It says in verse 12, And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. Pilate liked that. Thou wouldst have no power over me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. Because it's philosophy. Romans were all about philosophy. The Romans and the Greeks in that time, that part of the world, they loved contemplating Plato and Aristotle and different philosophers of the day. So when Jesus is saying these things here, it really rings like some of those other uh, great philosophers of his day. So Pilate understands this man's not done anything wrong. We're talking about philosophy. We're talking about thought and perceiving reality. So he thought even more, I don't want to kill this man. Uh, so, But the Jews cried out, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. 
Isn't it interesting how people who have already decided what they want to happen will twist the truth just to get what they want? People get so zeroed in on trying to make this thing happen that they want to happen that they're willing to twist words and twist the truth to make sure it happens. Without even so much as a forethought of, well, if I'm having to twist the truth, then maybe I should change what I'm thinking a little bit. If you're having to really twist your words or, or make sure your words are spoken in just such a way, then you need to rethink the way you think. Because what did he say? What did they say here? They said, if thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Jesus was no threat to Caesar. We talked about a couple weeks ago, uh, the power of Christ over money. Right? What was it that Jesus taught? Render unto Caesar's, Caesar the things which are Caesar's. In no place, in no way whatsoever, did Jesus ever teach somebody to overrule or ignore the authority of Caesar or his governing body. He taught his people to respect the law of the land, to obey when Caesar says to give taxes or whatever it was to do. Jesus, and Pilate understood this, was in no way a threat to Caesar, yet these religious leaders of the day would like to twist it to make it seem like Jesus was a threat to the government. If Jesus was left alone, he might start some sort of a rebellion against Caesar, which was entirely untrue. But they twisted it to seem so. You ought to be cautious about those who only want you to hear one side of the story. If you only ever want to hear this side, but they don't want you to come over here and hear their side, then that's not a narrative you need to stand with. Let's hear the whole truth and then decide. There are books that certain Christian uh, leaders, certain pastors, even certain Christian parents do not want their children reading because they're afraid that their children will learn from these books and will leave the way of God. Can I, can I complain for a minute here on my soapbox? What we believe is not so fragile that reading a Harry Potter book is going to kill it. What we believe is not so easily broken that if a, a kid walks into a Buddhist temple, he's going to give up on the way of the Lord to follow the way. You know why they do that? It's not because they discovered some other religion. It's not because they spoke to a, a Hindu man and it just related to them. You know why they're leaving the churches by the hundreds and thousands? It's because you came up to them and you gave them a 20-minute lecture on how their skirt was too short. It's because you came up to them and you gave them an hour sermon on why they shouldn't be listening to that music. You scolded them in front of the entire church. 
about that t-shirt that they were wearing. They're not leaving because of the Hindus. They're not leaving because of the Muslims. They're not leaving because of the Buddhists. They're leaving because of you. We've turned Christianity into this thing where a few grumpy old men think they can hold power over a group of people and you're no different than the Pharisees in the days of Christ. It is not a list of rights and wrongs. Christianity is a journey. It's a path. It's a way. You know what they call Buddhism? They call it the way. That's what it's called. It was alive in Jesus' day. You know what Jesus, that's why Jesus said, I am the way. The truth and the life. Because Christianity is a path. It's a journey. And we have turned it into a machine to grab power and cash. And have polluted the very ministry of Christ to become exactly that which he didn't want it to be. We have become the very thing we swore to fight. Let's look back at John 19. Let's remember what we're here for. Because of the love of Christ. People are fl fleeing the churches because the churches have fled from the will of God. From the love of God. Let's not twist words to make it seem like what we want it to be. Don't act like the chief priests. Let's act like Jesus. Verse 13 says, When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement. But in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover. And about the sixth hour, he saith unto the Jews, Behold, your king. But they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Now he said something here that's very telling. He said, We have no king. Right? He didn't say, That's not our king. He said, we have no king except for Caesar. Now, I'm sorry, but what about the God they do worship? What happened to the king of kings? Even if they don't believe Jesus is their Messiah, they still believe there's a Messiah out there somewhere. And he told on himself here. He's not interested in God. He's not interested in a Messiah. They don't want those things. What does he want? He wants to keep the status quo. He wants to keep the people kneeling at his feet, fawning over him. Ooh, how wise. Ooh, how smart. Ooh, how wonderful. Let's take up a collection for this wise, wonderful man. This man living in the greatest houses, the nicest clothes, always having kitchens full of food, never having to worry about the same things every other common man of his day worried about. They weren't interested in the things of God. They weren't interested in whether or not the Messiah was coming. They were interested 
in themselves. And that was it. We have no king. They served themselves. And only Caesar because they knew they couldn't overthrow him. Because I promise you, if they thought they had a chance, they'd throw Caesar off too. We have no king. Who is the king of your life today? Are you the king of your own castle? Or do you bow the knee to the Lord and Savior? This chief priest, he had no king but Caesar. Today, I hope that we worship King Jesus. It says in verse 16, Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. So Pilate finally and reluctantly made his decision. At the end of the day, he still decided to crucify an innocent man. Which brings us to number two, Jesus' excruciating death. As we said before, crucifixion was the single most horrific way for a person to die in all of human history. Even limited in the technology of their day, they discovered the best way to hurt somebody. Verse 17 says, And he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. I want to take a minute and share with you in other versions of uh, this story uh, in the other Gospels, we get more information about this moment. And that's because each of the Gospel writers uh, emphasizes uh, what they are trying to get across in their own uh, narrative. It's not that they're contradictory. It's that they're different people uh, telling the story with a different emphasis. Right? And so in other portions of Scripture, what happens here is they've given Jesus his cross. Now, a cross is a very heavy thing. It's, it's not easily carried. Uh, it was strapped to their backs, and they were to carry it from one side of town to the other. Now, this wasn't a small town. This was quite a large town, and they were meant to carry it from one side of town to the other to the place where they would die. They're literally carrying their own torture device across town to the place where they would be tortured with it, tortured to death. Jesus, having already been scourged, having already been stabbed in the head by these thorns, having already been beaten with the palms of the hands and dragged back and forth between different religious leaders, was exhausted physically. And as he carried his cross, this very heavy cross, it was too much for his physical human body to bear. And he began to collapse there in the street. So the Roman soldiers called a man named Simon to come and help Jesus carry his cross. And a lot of historians believe, and I personally believe, that the man who carried, who helped Jesus carry his cross was a black man. It was in that region where uh, Europe touches Africa, there in Egypt, between Egypt and the Middle East and so forth. And uh, many historians, including, um, uh, I forget that, that historical book that everybody references, a fantastic book, and I can't believe my brain can't think of it. Maybe that means God doesn't want me to say it. But very commonly accepted that this man was a black man. 
you, you can't have Christianity without that culture. Uh, it's not a white man's religion, right? It's not a North American religion. It's not an American religion. It's a world religion. Jesus belongs to the Middle East as much as he belongs to us, as much as, much as he belongs to Africa. Jesus didn't die for one nation or one quarter of the world. Jesus died for the whole world. But he helps bear Jesus' cross across town. And he carried it to, the, the, to Golgotha, which in the Hebrew is the place of a skull. Verse 18 says, Where they crucified him and two others with him on either side, and Jesus in the midst. And when they crucified Christ, there's many things that take place during a crucifixion. They take nails. And when I say nails, I don't mean uh, the little nails you hang pictures with. And uh, I don't even mean like uh, big roofing nails or wood screws. Uh, have you ever seen a railroad spike? What they crucified Christ with was just a bit smaller than a railroad spike. And they didn't put it in his wrist right here. You know why? If they'd have put it in his wrist right here, it would have sliced right through his hand and they would have fallen off the cross. So they put it in the center of his palm. Right down here toward the bottom so it wouldn't slide out that way too. Right here. One here and one here. And then they stack two feet on top of each other and they nail one massive railroad spike nail through both feet into the wood. Then once a man has been nailed to the cross, they begin to lift that cross and drop it into the hole that's been dug for it. And there he sets till he dies. And as he, he hangs there, the way that the cross hangs upon, a, the man hangs upon a cross it, it so closes in your rib cage so that as you hang there naturally, your, your lungs are incapable of taking in oxygen. So you have to lift yourself up on those nails in your hands to be able to take a breath. And what happens a lot of times is the exhaustion will kick in and a man will suffocate upon the cross and that's how they die. But assuming a man has enough fortitude to continue to lift himself up for a very long time and continue to breathe for a very long time, what will eventually happen is the strain upon his heart will become so great that it will literally burst within him. And that's how he'll die. And then if a man is able to endure all of these things and his heart doesn't give out and he continues to, to survive for a very long time. If the Romans get tired, and you'll, you'll read about this in other versions of this, they'll take uh, a heavy like mallet or something heavy and they'll go up to the person and they'll break their legs so that they can no longer lift themselves up to take a breath. And that's how they'll die. Sometimes there'll be internal bleeding from those things and they'll die that way. 
So the question then becomes, how did Jesus die? Because if you know this story, you know by the time they started breaking legs when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. They didn't need to break his legs. Did he suffocate to death? No, he didn't. Did his heart burst within him? No, it didn't. You know how Jesus died? The Bible tells us, Jesus said, No man taketh my life from me. I lay it down. Jesus wasn't killed. And you need to understand this. Jesus wasn't killed. Jesus died. He just chose to stop living. I lay my life down for the sheep, he says. There is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lays life down for his friends. Jesus chose to stop living. He chose to die so that you could live. No man took his life from him. When he had endured all he was meant to endure, when he had fulfilled every piece of prophecy, he died. He died. He gave up the ghost. Verse 19 says, And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. You know why he did that? It says in scripture, or it says historians tell us that when a man was crucified, they would hang over the top of the cross his, uh, his crime, what he was being crucified for, what his crime was. And when they put that over the cross, what's, what Pilate was saying was Jesus was crucified for being the king of his own people, for being the king of the Jews. It tells us in the same passage um, the chief priest in verse 21 uh, said of the Jews to Pilate, write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Now that's really big because what the, the, the chief priest is trying to say to Pilate is, don't write that he was crucified for being the king of the Jews. Write that he was crucified because he claimed to be the king of the Jews and he wasn't and he was committing blasphemy. And Pilate looked at him and said, he wasn't committing blasphemy. You murdered your king. From the mouth of a godless Gentile. The soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart and also his coat. Now, the coat, <clears throat> it says, uh, was without seam, woven, uh, from the top throughout. Uh, they said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, uh, because it was a precious coat, and they could sell it and make a lot of money. Uh, they parted uh, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they parted my raiment among, among them, and for my vesture did they cast lots. They were gambling for his clothing. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Uh, the, the soldiers at the foot of the cross, gambling. That's not a, a group I want to be associated with. But Now therefore stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene, all the Marys, 
When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. He saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge <coughs> sorry, with vinegar and put it upon a hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the vinegar, uh, which was a mixture that they had created for just such an occasion, when a person said they were thirsty, they would give it to them. When they drank it, it would make them more thirsty. Another portion of torture. When therefore, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. Now this is the part I wanted to get to before we were done for today because the phrase, it is finished, is the Hebrew word, titelistai. It is finished. It's the same word that when the men of war would go out to battle and they would defend their hometown, if the soldiers were victorious, they would send a messenger back to town with one word on his lips. He would come back to town and he would come through town shouting, Titelistai! Titelistai! Which means it is finished. The battle is over and the enemy has been defeated and cannot rise again. It's the same word that when they would finally choose the Passover lamb, that they would bring it before the high priest, and he would examine this thing with a fine-tooth comb. He'd get his magnifying glass out. He'd look this thing over from one side to the back, inside, and out. And if it was found just absolutely perfect, he would say, Titelistai. It is perfect. It is pure. It is acceptable to be the Passover sacrifice. Jesus hanging there on the cross, he's saying, The enemy has been defeated and cannot rise again. He's saying, The Passover lamb has been accepted by the high priest of God the Father. The, the, the sacrifice has been accepted and the sins have been paid for. The work, this was the work of Christ. It is finished. I want to thank you guys so much for being with us this morning. I am late. Uh, we will be back at 10 after 11 with our morning service. Thank you.